The good stuff. This is Professor David Block, and you are most welcome to join me on this global stream, looking up in wonder. I think it's awesome just looking at the tweets each week, how people come away by listening to the podcasts or live so changed. In their perspective. You know, I remember so vividly being in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and I was doing some observations there. The skies are so awesome. And you know, Duncan, one sees these incredibly high Andes mountains, and they look so impassable. But that's from the perspective from the ground. The moment you get up into a helicopter or into a light aircraft, you fly over the Andes, they look so minute. And I believe, Duncan, that that is a key uh, secret to looking up in life, is for you and I to always have the right perspective. Your thoughts there, Duncan? Absolutely true, Professor. Just the other day, I saw a picture of a square. Yes. But uh, the light was reflecting from uh, the right. Yes. And if you saw the the wall on the left, the picture looked like a square. But on the yes. other wall, it looked like a circle. Wow. So uh, it's all about perspective. You're absolutely wow. correct, Professor. I just think it's just so wonderful to have that analogy from Duncan. It's a question of perspective. And you know, listeners, perspective does not depend on this, on what's confining you in. For example, if you think of a, a jail cell such as on Robben Island, to give a key example, very small. But the, you know, the people inside, I had the honor of meeting Ahmed Krathrada the other day, and uh, his perspective was one of optimism, and yet other people's perspective would be one of pessimism. And so I invite you today uh, to look up with me, Professor David Block, and allow me to give you our usual contact details. If you wish to reach me live in studio, you simply dial 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. My Twitter handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. And Duncan was just saying, and I've been so excited, Duncan, to see the people saying, the professor's tweeting these days. Yeah. <laughs> So there we go, Duncan. It's at Starry Galaxy Man. If you want to reach us here in the studio, it's at cliffcentral.com, Facebook Cliff Central. WeChat ID is a very popular route of reaching me at Cliff Central and so forth. So today we're going to be looking at different uh, perspectives. I want to call today's uh, chat uh, from earthquakes to photography, from photography to earthquakes, because so much really is in the news with regard to earthquakes as well as photography. Speaking about photography, uh, Adrian Stern of 21 Icons was scheduled uh, to, was advertised rather, 
to be on studio with me. The uh, news is that uh, he could not make it today. He is in Cape Town, so he couldn't make a live visit here in studio. But the good news is that he'll certainly, according to his PA Harriet and Daniela Hess, they are, will ensure that at the first available opportunity when Adrian Stern of 21 Icons does hit Josie soil, that he certainly warms up the looking up with David Block uh, feed. So today I wish to delve into, delve down memory lane and take you to the era I grew up in with regard to photography. But before I even go down that route, what was tickling my fancy as I was just chilling over a bowl of soup prior to coming uh, live on air was this. How did astronomers cope pre-photographic era? Now, you might say to me, well, Professor, they simply made drawings of the night sky. Well, the question really is, how did they make drawings in the, of the night sky? They might say to me, well, Prof, that's a rather trite question or trivial question, but it's not, because think of the following. How would you draw uh, an image? For example, I have a tree in front of me or a little plant. How would I draw an image, Duncan, of that uh, plant in the dark? Doesn't it seem impossible? It absolutely does. But depending on your perspective, Professor, yes. that should be key. Well, that's right. Is What perspective are we going to use to uh, allow us to draw in the dark? Now, when you go outside, our eyes adapt very, very quickly indeed, very, very quickly to changing light conditions. But if you're observing something at night, you cannot have any source of illumination, meaning this. In the good old days, as people, some people use the phraseology, say, uh, I'm thinking back to, um, you know, the 17 and 1800s. Uh, and why I call them good is simply that I think there's a lot more silence than to think. <laughs> a lot more silence there to think. But the point really is, is that they drew the most beautiful diagrams of images in the night sky. And, uh, I have an image. Uh, on my computer, uh, a really neat one, actually, uh, and it's a drawing of the planet Saturn. Now, you might say to me, well, how did astronomers do this? Well, they look through their telescope, but then they can't even have a candle, because if they have a candle, it destroys their ability to draw in the dark, because your eyes are blinded by the candle. So then you'd say to me, well, Professor, let's just turn off all light sources. Let it be dark. Well, then you can't see where your pencil is. And the question is, how did astronomers draw such incredible fine detail? I'm looking here with Duncan at an image of the uh, Saturn, the planet Saturn, uh, drawn by uh, Truvelo, one of the greatest astronomical artists of all time. And you can Google him, T-R-O-U-V-E-L-O-T, Trivolo, and uh, you'll see that he, he performed the most articulate masterpieces of the night sky. But the question really is, is how do you do this? I mean, how do you actually go and draw in the dark? Um, 
if you have a lot of light, for example, suppose the moon is up and you have some moonlight lighting your paper, then you won't see Saturn that clearly. You need absolute darkness to actually draw Saturn. But the moment you put on, you know, today a torch or in those days a torch, um, a candle rather, uh, then of course uh, it's back to square one. You are blinded. You can't see well through the telescope and one's eyes are absolutely blinded. So I became very, very curious. How did astronomers draw in the dark? And I'd like you to give me some feedback before I give you the answers. I'd like you to perhaps just uh, tweet us or WeChat us or whatever medium you'd like to use. How do you believe that astronomers were able to know where their pencil was on a piece of paper and draw the most intricate drawings of the planets, of the Milky Way, and all besides, without any source of, um, you know, obvious light illumination, uh, such as candles. So I'm going to allow that to brew in your mind for a moment. But uh, what I'd like to really discuss today is uh, the invention of photography. Now, what's very interesting about this is, who is the true discoverer of photography? I think that this is a question which uh, just is so central. Uh, I was going to speak to Adrian Stern about this. It's so central in my mind to uh, to my whole being because I just adore photography. You know, uh, years ago at the University of Cape Town, I spent about three years in a dark room. In other words, for approximately three years, I would be in a room which was totally dark. And it was, you know, those were the eras in the 1980s, long before the mobile phone or the cell phone. And so, you know, I would stand in this dark room and uh, what we would call develop uh, a pr print after print, photograph after photograph. And so I have an interest going back some 30 to 40 years, if not longer, actually young, um, longer. I would say my interest in photography probably started at the age of 10, which would put it back about 50 years ago. I've had a great interest in who actually discovered photography. It's one of the most incredible uh, discoveries ever, ever made, surely. And what's very interesting is this. You can look up innumerable numbers of books and, and the, the true discoverer of photography is missing. It's extraordinary. I remember sitting at the home of a dear friend, Dr. Levine, and he hauled out a big thick book on photography and on the history of photography. But uh, when I looked at the actual discoverer of photography, uh, his uh, whole life work was delegated to perhaps one or two pages in a volume perhaps spanning five or six hundred pages. So something very strange Something very subtle has been going on. You know, today you take out your mobile phone, your cell phone, you take a photograph, you take it so for granted, but who actually developed the, the photograph, the photographic method? Who is the true discoverer of photography? 
So we've got coming up on the screen Chinese discovered photography. Uh, did the Chinese do it and so forth? But who actually discovered photography? So a very interesting exercise you can do too on Google is just to Google photography and discovery, discoverer and see for yourself who actually discovered photography. And you'll see some interesting names coming up. We're going to try this live right now. And it's got uh, photography in Guilin, um, which I, I've been to Guilin. It's a beautiful area in China. But photography was not actually discovered there. And so it's interesting as one Googles this and uh, uh, proceeds with this is that uh, – who actually made the discovery of the photographic method? So, a number of names normally come up in books. The most famous name is de Gure. And if you type his um, name into Google, you will probably see that he is credited with the discovery of the uh, photographic method. And indeed, I'm correct. If you do uh, look at Louis de Geur on Wikipedia, for example, and there, de Geur and the invention of photography, uh, it's really they dedicate, you know, all their sites to the discovery, um, you know, the discovery of the photographic method. I just see Duncan t punching in de Geur and dozens upon dozens of websites are coming up, even Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, saluting him for discovering um, the photographic method. But all these books are wrong. And uh, all these web pages which cite de Geur as the discoverer of photography um, are wrong. For example, on that site that I just saw now, uh, this is from the Encyclopedia Botanica, and I'm reading from the screen now, Louis de Gure, French painter and physicist who invented the first practical process of photography, uh, and uh, so on. But uh, de Gure never invented photography. So you have to be very careful here. Who actually discovered photography? Who produced to the world the first photographic image? Who actually was it? So if you do a little more research, you'll see that there's a very, very intriguing detective story. A very, very intriguing detective story. And it's perhaps one of the most closely guarded secrets, I think, in the scientific enterprise, because something as photography has been used so extensively from, you know, Zeiss microscopes to telescopes and so forth. But who actually, whose name is actually, um, you know, lying shrouded in the night, as we'd say. And Duncan has done some very careful searching on the web, and he's coming extremely close to something which is not French. Uh, the first photograph right now is um, is actually displayed at the University of Texas. So that is much closer to home. And I want to unpack the whole story because it's one of the most famous, um, as I'd almost say, one of the most unusual mysteries 
of the modern epoch. <coughs> so who makes the discoveries and who gets the credit is a total enigma. Uh, we are told that de Geer discovered photography, and that's absolute and utter bunkum. Professor, can I just stop you there? Absolutely, Duncan. Yes, uh, I've, I've heard rumors that uh, back in the days, people used to actually fight for patents. That is absolutely so, right. Very good. A lot of people would come up with an, an initial idea, but whoever gets the patent first yes. is the one that gets the most well, credit. That, that, that's exactly, exactly right, is that in this era of the photographic uh, discovery, there, patents was a huge thing. And it depended on your networking, it depended on who you knew, it depended very largely on your patents, whether you actually did have it patented or not. And uh, the story is going to unfold in a most unusual way, very centrally focused actually, Duncan, on your answer of patenting. So... The discovery of photography, the modern photographic method, is, goes to de Geer, uh, according to the web and according to encyclopedias. But that is wrong. And uh, I've done a whole lot of detective work together with Professor Kenneth Freeman in Australia. We actually wrote a book of this called Shrouds of the Night. If you Google Shrouds of the Night by Block and Freeman on Amazon, you'll see copies available right there. But the interesting point is not to promote our book, but rather to look at the story of who actually invented photography. And so it's extremely interesting that there was a scientist here in South Africa. He visited South Africa, Sir John Herschel. He actually visited the Cape, 1834 to 1838, and he was integrally involved in the photographic process. But what I'm very interested to know is who actually did the hard donkey work. So, if you were to Google January 7, 1839, that is claimed by the web and by the media and, and, and in books to be the official announcement to the world of the discovery of photography. And the story goes that Francois-Jean-Dominique Arago, who lived uh, 1786 to 1853, he announced to the Academy of Sciences in France the discovery of photography by de Geer to the world. And, of course, you can imagine all the little cafes in Paris and all the Parisians with all their buzz. I'd simply adore visiting the city of Paris. And you can imagine, uh, suddenly, here is a method whereby you can capture the image of your friend or your family members. Duncan, it was an extraordinary moment in history when you could actually, you know, ask somebody, you'd sit down or whatever, or stand, store. Uh, exposure times were rather long. But nevertheless, that you could actually record uh, your beloved's image. It must have been magic back in the days. I love that word magic because that's what it was. It was absolute magic. And so Arago, who is extremely prominent, belonged to a kind of photographic, well, belonged to the Academy of Sciences in France. And uh, there was a very, very 
sneaky underworking and underpinning of uh, the true discovery. He announced to the world on January the 7th, 1839, that, you know, the world of discovery of photography was ushered in, and he attributed it to Daguerre, D-A-G-U-E-R-R-E. So we need to look at who Daguerre was and was not. Now, De Geer was a master in architecture, which immediately should ring bells because I guess architecture is rather far removed from photography, in a sense. He was apprenticed in architecture and in the designing of theatres. So he was very interested in keeping people captivated. Mm -hmm. So he was very interested in theatre design and in what we'd call panoramic painting. In other words, the painting, one painting aligned with another, to another, to another, to another. And in other words, your audience would simply sit and look up in awe at these the swath of panoramic paintings. And in other words, he was very adept uh, in the design of theatres. Uh, he invented the diorama, which opened in Paris in July 1822. But again, a man who's in exceedingly visually orientated, a man who wants to absolutely captivate and motivate his audiences, a man whose eye is on art, a man whose eye is on imagination. And this is the man who was ready to grab, if I might use that word, what had been done earlier. It's a very fascinating story, and it's a very sad story. And the story unfolds as uh, follows. On August the 19th, 1839, the 25th Prime Minister of France, Arago, addresses the meeting. Within hours, every optician in Paris is besieged with people trying to share in the wonder of the new art science invented by, apparently, de Guerre. So, I and Professor Ken Freeman and myself have been very adept over time not to simply jump the gun and say, well, you know, the encyclopedias A, B, and C give credit to so-and-so for the discovery of X, Y, or Z, but actually, Duncan, to look at it for ourselves. And it turns out that the true inventor was buried before de Guerre's announcement, so he couldn't defend himself. He wasn't alive. Hmm. And the true inventor is a name which, if I mentioned to you, you you would never have heard of before, in all likelihood. And his name was Joseph Nips. Now, that is the correct French pronunciation, Nips, but in English, it's N for no, I for India, E, P for Peter, C, E. And it's pronounced Nips, but it's N-I-E-P-C-E. And Joseph Nips actually produced the, fir- the world's first photograph 
1826, long, long before the famous announcement at the Academy of Sciences that de Geer had discovered photography. And it's a very, very emotional story to me. It touched Professor Freeman and myself to the very core of our being. Because here on cliffcentral.com follows the true story. But, but, before I unfold and, you know, take out all my secrets out of my chest of drawers, we're going to have just a one or two minute music break. Join me after the break. Please feel free to dial in and phone in. Ask whatever you wish. David Block, looking up. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand by me And darling, darling, stand by me And oh, stand by me Oh, darling Stand by me, stand by me If the sky that we look upon Should tumble and fall And the mountain should crumble to the sea Well, I won't cry I won't cry, no, I won't shed a tear Just as long as you stand, stand by me And darling, darling, stand by me And oh, stand by me Stand by me, stand by me.
A very, very hearty welcome back. You are listening to Professor David Block. I have the honor of leading you on a little journey today involving looking up. But we're looking up with a difference today. We'll also be touching on earthquakes later on. But right now we're right in the heart and the mystery of something which is absolutely awesome and that, you know, encyclopedias are attributing the discovery of photography to de Geer. We're very interested to know who the true discoverer was. And, uh, Duncan, what's on your mind as we go and explore this uh, avenue of uh, top secrecy? Professor, I know if I was in your shoes, I would have killed to be have mm. to have had been alive during the 1800s and the yeah. 1700s oh, no. to make all those discoveries by yes. myself, Professor. Well, that's right. I think that <laughs> I think that you know this was an amazing period, Duncan, to live in. It really was. It was magic, and I mean there was magic in the air, and the time was just ripe. And I think it's awesome to be living. Uh, at times like these, when the times are just ripe, you know, you're almost pregnant with a new idea, as these guys were. And it was just a question of giving birth, but also giving birth in the right city, giving birth in the right time, giving birth with the correct sort of networking. That is what's so critical. It turns out not only in the history of photography, but also in the discovery of many other sciences. Is the time still ripe in our generation, Professor? Well, I believe that there are just, uh, that's just such a lovely question, Duncan, and I really believe that uh, the, our minds are pregnant with many new ideas. Uh, what is dark matter? What mm. is dark energy? Uh, you know, the encoding or the decoding of the DNA genome, these are cutting-edge, pioneering discoveries. And, uh, yes, you know, I believe so many discoveries, grand discoveries, of course, have been made, such as photography. But I believe that there's just so much, for example, in my own world of photography um, and in astronomy, rather, to, uh, to still make. Uh, but you need the right perspective. You've got to have the right perspective. But, yes, dreams are made of the things developed in our mind. You know, I think back to the year 1969 when we placed man on the moon, Duncan. I was in uh, high school, and there I was and listening to the radio, traditional radio, and uh, man actually had placed foot on the moon. It was an awesome moment. But it all started off with a dream, the discovery uh, of uh, rockets and rocket propulsion. And so, on. so, yes, discoveries are being made as I'm talking to you. Mm. And so let us remember that, you know, according to the mass media and according to so many books, uh, photography goes back to the discovery of photography goes back to 1839. But I claim it goes back a lot further. I claim that uh, the magic month is September 1827. September 1827. And I've got lots of proof of this. Professor Freeman and I've got oodles of uh, proof of this in our book, Shrouds of the Night. I introduced you to uh, Nips, Joseph Nisephora Nips, N-I-E-P-C-E. And Nips came to England with a bit of luggage. And in this luggage 
were so-called heliographs. Those are photographic images uh, produced when you take um, a sensitized emulsion and you let sunlight do the job. So, in other words, it's almost like developed. Uh, the sensitive emulsions are developed in the sun, not in a darkroom. Heliography. So, Nips comes to, and this is well documented, Nips comes to visit uh, the scientist. He, he comes to visit Claude, uh, his brother, who was seriously ill at Kew in the UK. But while he was visiting Kew, he happened to meet, Nips did, Joseph Nips, he happened to meet the scientist Francis Bauer, FRS, and showed him some of his heliographs. And uh, one of these images is quite amazing. I mean, it absolutely simply blows my mind away. It's an extraordinary image. I'm going to show you, uh, Duncan, and you can look on the web too, if you type in NIPS and world's first photograph, University of Texas, it should come up there, 1826, you'll actually see this. Now, what is this? This is the world's first photograph. And if you look, this is a pigeon house. There's a little pear tree. There's a patch of sky shining through the uh, mm. branches. There's a slanting roof of the barn. You see that? And there's another wing of the family home. I wish that was an HD, Professor. <laughs> I do too. I think HD would just be so awesome. But what's terribly interesting is if you look at the bottom of the photograph, it says 1826, whereas the discovery of photography is associated with the year 1839. So here is uh, Nisephora Nips. Uh, coming to the UK, visiting, uh, a scientist, uh, Francis Bauer, FRS, and he shows him these heliographs and Bauer's mouth hangs open. And this is the invention of really, you know, the world's first photograph. It's, you know, discovering, uh, what happens when you expose sensitized emulsions to the sun. So here follows the true story. Here follows the true story after Nips returned to France from the Britain in 1828. Stayed there approximately two years. Well, well, he took the first photograph in 1826, to be correct. Uh, he returned from Britain, that was in France, and uh, he returned from Britain in 1828. So, of course, he stayed in Britain a much shorter period. So... Duncan brought up the whole issue of patenting. And this is really terribly interesting because Duncan almost had a whiff of what the truth really is. So what's interesting is that the true discoverer of photography enters into a formal partnership with de Gure. And he does so in 1829. So that's a full 10 years before de Gure announces to the world, uh, or Arago announces to the world, the discovery of the photographic method. It's a full 10 years. Huh? But what's interesting is that de Gure, who's trained in theatrical design and in architecture and in panoramic paintings and the diorama, he is ready for something really neat. And... 
Uh, Nips, on the other hand, is extremely modest. He goes to England. He shows Francis Bauer his first photographs. But he hasn't got the networking. He hasn't got the names. He hasn't got the contacts which de Geer had. De Geer had contacts right to the top with the Prime Minister. And so isn't this amazing that it's not only what you know, but as Duncan correctly says, it's who you know. And so de Geer does something which is very ingenious. He approaches, they approach each other actually, to be correct, and they enter into a formal partnership with de Geer on the 14th of December, 1829. So remember now that by this stage, Nips has done it. He's produced the world's first photograph of the pigeon house, the tree, the pear tree, the branches, the slanted roof, the barn, and so on. So Nips has done it all. But the public are, the worldwide public are completely unawares of the name of Nips, as you and I might well be today. Now, what's interesting is each company, when you enter a formal partnership, each company has a name. And so they decided to call it Nips de Gure. In other words, beautiful. Nips's name's first. De Geer's name is second, and that's the correct order. Uh, Nips has secured the world's first photograph. De Geer is very interested in how the photographic method works, but they enter into this agreement, and the company is called Nips De Geer. So please do note, uh, listeners, the ordering of the names. It's Nips and De Geer. Now, here comes the punch. Article 3 of that 1829 agreement reads as follows. And I want to read this publicly today on cliffcentral.com. And I quote, As soon as the present agreement is signed, Nips must confide to de Geer the principle on which his discovery rests. Hmm. In other words, de Geer, part of the agreement is that de Geer must be informed by Nips. Nips must tell and divulge his secrets to de Geer. And so this is happening because Nips doesn't have the networking, the contacts. De Geer was a very, very prominent man in France. He had all the networking right up to the prime minister. And in Article 3 of that 1829 agreement, it says, Nips must confide to de Geer the principle on which the discovery of photography rests. Isn't that astounding? It sounds like a trap to me. It's an absolute trap. But, but Nips doesn't seem to be aware of the trap. This is what's so interesting is I think Nips Duncan went into this with a very, very open uh, heart. Now, there's a letter which I've uh, uncovered dating, dated 1828. Now, remember, this company was, uh, this company was formed, the Nipster Company, and the article I just read you was dated 1829. A year before this, I've got a letter from de Geer addressed to Nips, and it says, I am burning with desire 
to see your experiments from nature. I am absolutely burning. It burneth within my frame. I am burning with desire to see your experiments from nature. So in other words, de Geur is saying, Dos Brent, it's burning within me to see your discovery of the photographic method, as we actually put it in today's terms. So that's a letter from de Geur to Nips. Uh, dated 1828, long, long, long time before de Geur is credited with the discovery of the uh, a photographic process. So de Geur is burning with desire. So you can see he's not the discoverer at all. Uh, de Geur is not the discoverer. He yeah. says here, I am burning with desire to see your results, to see your heliographs, to see uh, what you have actually done. But now here comes a little stroke in the woven cloth of life. Nips dies of a stroke. Nips dies of a stroke in 1833 on the 5th of July, 1833. And Nisephora Nips dies of a stroke at the age of 69. And as Duncan has said, the trap is well set now. The trap is exceedingly well set now. So, there's further work involved. So, what happens is de Geur meets his son, the son of um, Anisophora Nips, Isadora Nips, meets his son, the son of the late Nisophora Nips, who discovered photography. And they drew up an additional contract in 1835, two years after the death of Nisiphora Nips. And this is one of the most intriguing pieces of history. Article 1 of the contract says that the name needs to be changed. And it refers to the firm name De Geur et Isidore Nips. So there's a very subtle manipulation you see that, Duncan? I do, I do. From, from uh, the first company called Nips de Geur. Now it's de Geur and Isidore Nips. The original discoverer, uh, Joseph Nips, is now lying dead, dead of a stroke. Uh, and de Geur now claims that he is the principal discoverer. Nips is second, but he is dead. Nips is second in the naming. The naming is now de Geur Nips. So you can see what's happening here very, very clearly. And then as we go on, there's a final contract between de Geur and Nips prepared by, in advance by de Geur, who insists that de Geur, this article insists that de Geur is the inventor of photography. Um, and that it will carry the name of de Geur only. And it was signed in 1837. So why am I making such a great story of this? Well, I know I've been a professor, been privileged to work at the University of the Witwatersrand for a grand number of years. Uh, I've been there since the year 1984. I guess I've held a job for a reasonably good time, Duncan, not just a year or two, but more than 30 years. And, uh, oh, here's a lovely question I see from uh, Andrew 
And Andrew says, I read that the first attempt was in 1839 and that was of the moon. So surely the discovery of photography was much earlier. You're referring, of course, to the first attempt of photographing the moon. I have beautiful images in my book of astrophotography of the moon, the works of Nasmith and Carpenter, and those followed the, after the years of 1839. But we're looking at the period pre-1839, and yes, we're not looking at photographs uh, of the night sky, astrophotography, but we, you're quite right, Andrew. Uh, astrophotography developed after 1839, uh, seriously so, um, in terms of a widespread use of the photographic method to photograph the night skies. Many, many examples in our book, Shrouds of the Night, but we are referring really to the first, you know, Nisiphora Nips's attempts and successful attempts to develop photograph, photography. And so, why am I making such a long, big, windy story about this? Well, I said that I've been at the University of Vatrand, uh since 1984, a university I'm very proud to work at, headed by Professor Adam Abib, who's been on our show, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research, Professor Zeblon Velikazi, my head of school, Professor Ibrahim Mamoniat. And... So I'm very aware working there that uh, many discoveries in the world have been attributed to the wrong people. Mm. This is by no means, uh, Duncan, uh, just a shot in the dark, this one. You know, you used the word trap, Duncan, and uh, these guys, and I'm talking these human beings, just know how to set the stage so carefully. And you invariably find that there's someone extremely humble, perhaps, in the background, makes the discovery. They suddenly shown, like de Geer was, images of Nips's heliographs. De Geer goes away, and the worldwide credit, even today, for the discovery of the photographic method is given to the wrong person. Uh, Professor, one must think that uh, as soon as you make a discovery, you become eager to share it with the rest of the world. So people are hungry out there to to be famous, so they will take advantage of your eagerness. Absolutely, that is so true. And the point being that these, this in eighteen in 1826, when Nip succeeded in doing this, there were no social media methods. Mm. There were no social media platforms. So what he did was, is he went to England. But he couldn't, he didn't have the networking capability to reach the people who really mattered here. The highest he ever got to was Francis Bauer, FRS, who looked at his heliographs and said, wow, I'm smitten by them. They are awesome. And de Geer looks at them and, you know, says, I'm burning with desire to see your work. But he didn't have the networking to actually, uh, you know, uh, to actually go and uh, reach those who mattered so that, you know, the discovery would have been announced on United Kingdom soil. We have a caller from DJ Houston. DJ, how are you this afternoon? Very well, thank you. And yourself, Professor? I'm very well. It's welcome to Looking Up with David Block, and it's a singular joy and honor to have you on our show this afternoon. Oh, thank you very much, Professor. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. What is your question, so, sir? I know you've been overseas recently doing some following up on your book and that, but I was, I was just wondering, what has been the biggest 
single highlight of your career thus far? Hmm. It's very hard. To, it's a brilliant, brilliant question, isn't it, Duncan? I think it's just it's riveting. Hmm. And uh, there have just been too many to actually uh, delineate. I mean, one highlight was that uh, I so much wanted to accompany Stephen Hawking to meet Nelson Mandela. Uh, but I wasn't sure whether this would pull off or not. And I remember, in fact, it was you, I believe, uh, DJ, who actually sat and prayed with me that uh, the, a miracle would unfold. Because at the time, if I, you remember, I think Mr. Mandela was receiving about 30,000 invitations per month. But there are just so many wondrous moments in my career. Now, if we look at the scientific ones... I suppose having my work featured on the cover of Nature, which is the world's most prestigious scientific journal, I suppose that is surely one of the highlights of my career, is that I still believe, I am told, I'm the only scientist in Africa, on the continent of Africa, the only scientist, not only astronomer, whose work has twice been featured on the cover of Nature. So that was certainly a highlight. But it's very difficult, you know, Duncan, to actually answer DJ Houston's question and say, this was the greatest highlight of my career, because there have just been so many. I think every day, you know, I've just been showing uh, Duncan uh, some photographs of Advocate George Bezos in studio here. And those, weren't those magical moments? Magical too? moments, indeed, Professor. I mean, and you know, in these photographs, and I just want to tell uh, listeners, if I may, I want to introduce you just very briefly to an incredible lady called Elizabeth Callow. And if you want to look at her work, she's just so easy. Her webpage is www.photography-africa.co.za. That's www.photography-africa.co.za. And she is extraordinary. Duncan, how do you rate her pictures of George Bezos and myself? Anything she's absolutely, look at the quality of the work. Uh, the quality is absolutely exceptional because I remember it was uh, two episodes ago she was in here. Yes. I could have never imagined that the work would turn out this brilliantly. No, I mean, these are like classic masterpieces, DJ. And so what I'm saying to you is it's very, very hard to delineate. You know, often when I'm at a telescope and images unfold in the darkroom, it's just so awesome. They are incredible highlights. You know, now I'm privileged to sit next to Andreas Kalau at times, who's, you know, one of South Africa's, if not South Africa's best fine art printer. He's at www.silvertone.co.za, www.silvertone.co.za. But why I'm mentioning these two great pioneers is simply because they've been so intricately, inextricably involved in uh, my career and in capturing photographically the highlights or some of the highlights of my career. But undoubtedly, I suppose, it's incredible to think that uh, I was um, the only South African-based scientist to accompany Stephen Hawking to meet Nelson Mandela. Uh, there was, of course, from abroad, Neil Turok uh, and myself and um, Puck Buerta and then Mr. Mandela and Hawking. 
And uh, that was undoubtedly, in terms of fame, of the people I've been with, I think to have someone as famous as Stephen Hawking and to have someone as famous as Nelson Mandela both in the same room at the same time was a feat that I will never, ever, ever forget. And uh, I salute you for your prayers in assisting to make that happen. But it's just very hard. I think that even looking back to the time when I was a schoolboy, when my father, Leon Block, bought me my first telescope, that was a highlight of my career, an absolute highlight. My very first telescope. And you know, Duncan, I stood there in Krugersdorp and looked at the planet Saturn, and it was just so beautiful, so awesome. And that was my magic moment. So I would say you calling me today is a magic moment, DJ. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Prof. Thank you so much. And so we are going to be winding up in the next last five minutes, as it were, on, uh, oh, inappropriate says, Prof, they are, are they still teaching children that there are nine planets in our solar system? Well, according to textbooks, they teach us that it's Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So that would indeed Total nine. We go again. Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. But Pluto has actually been demoted from being a planet. It's no longer a planet. It's called a planetoid. And so, strictly speaking... Uh, they should not be teaching children that there are nine planets in the solar system. They should be teaching that the solar system is made up of a huge number of planets and planetoids. In other words, little pieces of rock. For example, you've got the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And uh, you've got rocky uh, bodies beyond the orbits of Pluto and so on. So Pluto is no longer a planet simply because there's zillions of other uh, Pluto-type objects out there. And so our solar system is exceedingly complex uh, inappropriate in terms of um, just counting nine. You could count literally thousands more in terms of planetoids. But just as we're wrapping up, of course, on the headline news, there's been earthquakes, and that really brings home the fact that our Earth and on our Earth, not only do discoveries change names, but uh, there's a shifting of plates, there's a shifting of the crustal uh, plates, the tectonic plates. Nothing is fixed under the Earth's surface. It's moving, it's dynamic. And I remember about a year ago, well, about nine months ago, Duncan, we had an expert here. Do you remember that on um, earthquakes seismology. and, and seismology? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was answering these very questions of the differences between tremors and earthquakes and so forth. But, you know, my heart, of course, is very much based, in a sense, in California, because that's where the great astronomy of old was first done. And, you know, nobody knows when the next big one is going to hit Los Angeles, for example. Nobody knows. The Earth is dynamic. Things are moving. Uh, 
plates are moving. It's a very dynamic process. Now, if you've ever been to a Greek restaurant, you would know this, that somebody can drop the plate and it'll create a big bang, yes? And so (laughs) this is exactly what happens if you imagine, you know, underneath the Earth's surface you've got these plates moving. Uh, It can happen that they move apart, that they cause ruptures, that they move together. I think that's the wonderful thing of being in science, is you can devote your entire career to seismology, for example, as our guest did, And that is just extraordinary, and we salute such scientists so much at the cutting edge. But then, of course, you can also look up at the big picture, another perspective, and a perspective of the big. And I just love to think, in conclusion, listeners, that there's a great blending between the worlds, for example, of art, the world of science, the world of photography, But we have to end off where we began, and that was when Duncan and I were interacting about perspective. Do not believe everything you read on the web, for example. Think for yourself. Do some research, for if you have a new perspective, you might win the Nobel Prize of tomorrow.